You are listening to the Tour des Flâneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage four, today we're in Calais. What's happening, Mick? This is a repeat now, Paris-Nice. Yulmo Visma is going mad up this last climb. Makes sense, 10K to go now, but they're almost exploiting their whole team here. It's just three guys left of the peloton. That's how hard they're going. There's Yatesy, Walt Van Aert's on there. Is it Vingegaard? Vingegaard's, I think it is. Where's Roglic? This is incredible. Look at him, the yellow jersey, just attacking the race. Is he going to go on with it? Surely, surely he's got to go on with it. Walt Van Merck's. It is. He's a cannibal. Here he comes, Mitch. Walt Van Aert's still out in front. He's going to do it. He's going to do it 300 metres to go. Incredible effort. Here he comes. Unbelievable. He's got it. He's definitely got it. Here he comes. Here comes the peloton. They're not even close, Mitch. No. Here comes the sprint now. Um, they're hitting out into Marche. Unbelievable, the peloton is strung out single file. I don't think Gronawagen got back on. Oh my God, what a finish, it's happening. Finally, the tour has kicked off. Look at him there, flapping his arms, ready for liftoff, I think, like some kind of bird of prey. Wow, Van Aert, three second places in a row so far in this Tour de France, and now a stage victory for the yellow jersey. Oh, I think I just saw someone salute who thought they won. Surely not. I did, for second place. Who was that? Well, that was Mitch and I out at the finish in Calais. And Mitch, you weren't wrong. Jasper Philipson of Alpecin de Kerning lifted his arms in the air, thinking he'd won the stage, completely unaware that Wout van Aert in the yellow jersey was up the road. I mean, how did he miss him in the uh, yep, bright yellow skin suit? Well, I guess he just never saw him. And, and that can actually, as weird as it sounds, you so focus on the race. I can imagine, not that I've been in that situation, unfortunately, I could imagine being in that situation because I've also done things and not known there was someone up the road, not going for the win. But you get, you're so focused on what happened. I can imagine he may have been dropped. He would have got back on and then he would have been just focused on the sprint. It would have felt like they were sprinting for the win because the pace was so intense. Coming in, all the riders around him would have had that pressure on him. The radio potentially may have fallen out or was too noisy, whatever it was. And of course, when he, when he popped past... He was like, I've, I've won this. I've got a Tour de France in the bag. Well, let's get the word from the horse's mouth, so to speak, because Francois, you spoke to Jasper Philipson, the Belgian rider of uh, Alpecin de Kerning at the finish, and this is what he said. What happened on the, in that finish line? Could you tell us? Uh, I thought I won, but then I saw uh, Van Aert in front. I never knew he was uh, in front, so yeah, it's a shame. But at the same time, I mean, you, you won the bunch sprint with the, the other big guys, so he also promising for the, for the future. Yeah, I feel good, but uh, at the moment I'm just a bit disappointed there. Yeah. How come you didn't know that well, Wood had gone? I mean, Because we were too far at the climb and uh, we just hit on pace, but we, I never saw him uh, riding up front. So big disappointment for now? Yeah, for sure. Well, here we are in Calais, guys. We've uh, come into the centre of town here. What are we enjoying as our post-race tipple this evening Mitch well this is quite common up in this area La Goudal it's a beautiful beer it's a French beer 
um, but it actually tastes very much like a Belgian blonde. Um, if anyone has seen this beer, it's becoming quite popular around now. It's a 7.2%, and it's like I said, it's just like a blonde Belgian um, beer, really. There's nothing more to it. It's quite palatable. It's not too crazy. It's not too strong. You can, you know, punch a couple down and you go away singing merrily. It's lovely, isn't it? It's like uh, got a little hit of cobblestones, I think, mm. which is uh, completely appropriate considering what's coming tomorrow. We came through the kind of suburban area of Calais. We turned down a couple of bars that didn't look terribly uh, welcoming to uh, international podcasters. And we are on uh, a, a busy street here in Calais. And I suppose it's time to give the tale of the attack for stage four of the Tour de France because we're back in France of course after the transfer from Denmark and it started in Dunkirk it finished in Calais it looped round and crucially it went over that climb with 10 kilometers to go Magnus Court he's still up the road racing in that polka dot jersey hoovering up the points for EF education easy post and he was in the break again today but he had some company this time Anthony Perez of Cofidis uh, but Court took all of the points until he was caught. Uh, the gap went up to about seven minutes at one point and then down again as quick step chased and then back up again to seven, min- seven minutes or so. And Court, once he'd snaffled most of the points, all bar one in fact, with 42 kilometres to go, he sat up and was caught by the peloton. Perez stayed away and he was caught on the final climb, the bottom of the final climb, the Cote du Cap Blanc-Nez. And it was on that climb that Tish Benut of Jumbo Visma really blew it apart. I mean, the pressure was so hot from Jumbo Visma there. Wout van Aert then went over the top. And we were wondering, as you heard with our little live commentary there, what were they thinking with Roglic and Vingegaard? We'll discuss that in the next part. It was really only Adam Yates of Ineos Grenadiers who was hanging on. And then once van Aert went over the top, Uh, spoiling Magnus Court's 100% record in the polka dot jersey competition. He still had eight kilometres to go and he soloed to a very impressive win. Jasper Philipson was the first non-winner with his arms in the air, uh, eight seconds in the end the gap. Christophe Laporte third, also a Jumbo Visma rider of course. Alexander Christophe fourth, Peter Sagan fifth. Overall, Van Aert's lead going into tomorrow's cobble stage is now up to 25 seconds over Yves Lampart. He also has the green jersey, of course. As I said, Court still in the polka dots, Pogacar in the white jersey. And stage five tomorrow takes the tour into hell. There's cobbles ahead as we go from Lille to Arenberg. The cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, the sponsors of the Cycling Podcast. We've been giving a mention to the new Super Sapiens podcast, which you'll find in your favourite podcast app. Here is a little teaser from their recent interview with the triathlete, Eloise Duluart. How, how do you find the balance now between being an athlete and wanting to be your best? You've been top 10 in a couple of 70.3 last years. How do you find the balance around fueling and, and, and pushing your body to the max? 
It's been a 29-year-old journey. <laughs> Let's not lie. What I really focus on is what can I do to be consistent? Let's not lie. I've got the T-shirt, been there, done the T-shirt of like going full gas and breaking. So I'm now really focused on that. What makes me consistent? And what is the key focus that I can have to, yes, okay, on paper, it might not be the perfect training. But if I can then keep running week on week, or if I can keep getting on the bike week on week, I'm going to become a far better athlete than if I smash three months of training, do one race and then burnt out for the rest of the year. And it's taken me a long time to be okay with that. Find out more about Super Sapiens at supersapiens.com. Well, finally, the Tour de France burst into life this afternoon, didn't it? Not saying that the three stages in Denmark were disappointing, but that was something else from Wout van Aert and clearly premeditated by Jumbo Visma to really explode it on the climb, get on the front foot and lay it down to everybody else. Yeah, the, 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 obviously the premeditation was for, you know, an all-out attack on the last climb. Uh, as uh, Wood van Aert himself said, he was, he was not really expecting to go all the way. And, and to be honest, to see... We were discussing the other day when was the last time uh, we saw Yellow Jersey win a bunch sprint. Uh, this time there was no bunch sprint for uh, Wood because he, he decided to do something else. But to see the Yellow Jersey break away in the last 10Ks and go for, the, for a stage win the way... Van Art did it. I mean, I, the only comparison I can think of in a major tour like the Tour de France is, you know, is with the likes of uh, Merckx or Eno. I mean, really, I, I, I rarely saw such a show of strength, you know, from a, from a, with someone with a yellow jersey on the back. Usually, yellow jersey guys tend to be, especially in the first part of the, the race, a little bit conservative. I mean, this is everything but conservative. Three second places, one win. Well, it's difficult to to, to to do you know even better than that. And there were other little uh, uh, you know lessons to be taught. Like uh, Van Aert also said that he, the, 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 and Franz Masson that we I talked to and we will listen to him later. But they they, they said it was the, the the aim was to 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 test the others and to see what you know what this attack could do uh, for the GC. We saw. Uh, we, we, we saw uh, Primoz Roglic and uh, Jonas Vingegaard, you know, take the wheel of Van Aert for, for a while and try to follow Adam Yates for there as well. Uh, but but of, of the two co-GC leaders in the team, Vingegaard seemed to me the, more, the most, uh, yeah, how could I say, aggressive. Uh, and, and so maybe if, if even in that little skirmish, there's already a lesson to be drawn for the future. Well, that's an interesting question, Mitch, because what was Roglic doing, just kind of hanging back? You seem to think when we discussed it on our way back to the press room that that perhaps was the tactics. Let Vingegaard try to react with Van Aert and just leave Roglic to sit tight and, and not do anything too spectacular today. When we say sit tight, you know, he's, <laughs> he's literally, you know, 50 metres behind. So I don't know how much sitting tight he might have done. But it may have been the, maybe he made the decision on the fly that Vingegaard was there. The gap opened up. There was no need for him to close the gap and put himself over the limit. And he, rather than do that, whoever created the gap there, I don't know. He sat there with the rest of the GC guys going, look, we've got a great situation up there. We've got Vingegaard up there. We've got um, Walt Van Aert up there. There's no need for me to close the gap. I can imagine he would have had the legs to be there if necessary, but for whatever reason, he wasn't. And it was quite a nice little play they could do. Um, and obviously, in the end, no one could follow Walt Van Aert, not even Adam Yates, who was in his wheel. And even Vingegaard, he was 
he was looking back going, oh, geez, I hope there's no one else in my wheel because I'm about to swing out here. That was the feeling I got, that everyone was on the limit. The best man, the best man the peloton won today, that was very clear. I mean, Banute was the one who really uh, fired it up, wasn't he? Uh, you spoke to him at the finish, Mitch. So shall we hear what Tish Banute said? Tish Banute, mate, that was incredible to watch. You've got to tell me, walk me through, talk me through the last climb and more specifically your effort at what you did to set up Wode for that win. Yeah, um, first of all, we hope for more crossmen before the climb, which uh, there was not so much wind today. But then a really nice lead out of, of Nathan van Ooydonk. Uh, we had the plan to turn in front. I think he turned first or second and I turned third or fourth with uh, Van Baal in between and he went straight from the bottom, <laughs> which we planned also in the climb of what, 800 meters, 1K. You have to do. And then uh, Van Baal, after 300 meters, I think he dropped the, the wheel already a bit for Nathan. And there I took over and I just went full until I, <laughs> I collapsed. And on a certain moment, I thought, fuck, I, cannot, I didn't see the sign of 500 meters yet, but I think I passed it already. Because the moment I swung off was not so far to the top anymore. And I only saw three guys in the wheel. So uh, then I also knew, okay, I was not the only one in pain. <laughs> were you just thinking, when Nathan went, were you thinking, oh, this is a little little tough? Or were you comfortable at that moment? Yeah, well, he went hard for sure. It's also, he showed already the full classics campaign that he is, I think, in this moment, the best guy to do some things like this. He brings us uh, in the wind, uh, first in the climb, and then... Uh, he still has something left to uh, to do the start of the climb. So, uh, yeah, really, really uh, the MVP uh, today, I think, yeah. Was Wout yelling out to you, like, that's enough, that's enough? Or he was you knew he was comfortable with that pace? Because you were going deep. Like, I mean, three guys left in the whole peloton. Yeah, I don't know if he was yelling. I heard a lot of people yelling, but I don't think Wout was one of them because yeah. he, uh, he, dr- he dropped them on the top. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think on a yeah. climb like this, he's the best in the world in this moment. So, uh, if he is... Uh, Hurting, then uh, everybody is hurting, which we also saw, I guess, yeah. Awesome, mate. Go get in the bus. Great work. Well, it was clearly premeditated by Jumbo Visma, wasn't it? We'll hear now from their sports director, Franz Massen, and then from Sepp Kuss, um, because I wanted to know from him, you know, when uh, a team goes on the front foot like that, how much easier, and again, Mitch, I'm using this in sort of matters of degrees here, uh, it doesn't make it easy, but key point was Jumbo Visma knew what they were planning, knew what they were doing and their job was to execute whereas everybody else was reacting. So here's Franz Massen and Sepp Kuss of Jumbo Visma. Yes, it was a bit of plan to, to make a lot of damage on the last climb and uh, it succeeded uh, pretty well. That was the plan that we would attack there on the last climb and see on the top what would happen. We, we thought maybe uh, 20 or 30 guiders could could escape there, but uh, yeah, Wout was uh, stronger than uh, anyone else, I think, and that uh, was also nice. From a tactical point of view, Wout Van Aert winning today, did it sort of make it easier for him to settle into the team role tomorrow, because it's going to be so important on the cobbles to have everybody to protect Roglic and Vingegaard? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good point. Uh, you know, after after all the second places, uh, for sure you, you want a victory, but... Uh, now that he won and in such a such a way, um, I think you know it gives you confidence, but also uh, um, a bit of uh, peace. So uh, yeah, for sure, if he's in the position, he'll he'll go for the win tomorrow. But 
yeah, we, we also have to keep in mind the both the different objectives. And how premeditated was that today? Was that always the plan? Let's get into that climb. Benut set the pace that hard and then Van Aert go over the top. Yeah, that was always the plan. Uh, but uh, yeah, when when it's such a nervous peloton, uh, it's, it's always hard to have everybody in position at, at the right moment. But uh, yeah, we did it and, and, it, and it went uh, more or less like we expected. But for a while to go solo was something different. <laughs> and just lastly, I mean, very impressive is clearly very strong but in that situation is it the fact that Van Aert and you guys know what's coming that gives that extra advantage when the margins are so tight because everyone else is reacting I guess whereas you know what your plan is and how you're going to execute yeah it's uh it's nice when you know uh what's coming uh I think on on that climb positioning is everything so uh if 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 there's any other key riders that are just a bit too far back it can totally blow up and uh, uh, play out uh, really differently. Jumbo Visma were very aggressive quite early on the climb. Banut did all of that pace setting. Clearly they knew what they were doing and it did have everybody else scrambling didn't it? No one else really had any time to do anything if they were planning to do something. They were all reacting and just doing the best they could under this assault. Well, even once they went over the top of the climb, that was the most interesting thing for me there. We could see that even though Wout van Aert, he was on the limit and he was holding speed. He wasn't he wasn't versing teams, organised teams chasing him back. He was just versing one-off guys that managed to get over that hill and were trying to do a, a team job. And there was just one guy pulling and then the next guy, he would explode and then another guy would come to the front and pull. So at that moment there when I could see it, sort of about four five six k to go i thought he's got a real chance here only then they got organized with about two k to go with some teams and some more numbers but by then it was too late um definitely not downplaying the ability of walt van art because it was just pretty incredible the only thing i can remember back to something like that and i was talking to you about this i can't remember the stage now was fabian cancellara when he rode away from the peloton in the final kilometers and there was a whole peloton doing what they could, swapping off behind, and one man defeated them. This reminded me of that. Even more impressive because it was a much longer effort. Yeah, I remember Cancellara doing that, going into Compiègne uh, in the yellow jersey, I think it was, several years ago. Am I right in saying that? I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that. I remember Cancellara doing that, but was he in the yellow jersey? That's the thing I'm not sure about. Well, the, listeners, anyway. well, the listeners will correct my memory. Yeah, of course. But, yeah, uh, I mean, this was... Uh, the, the the good thing about it is that you know what what the lesson of the one of the lessons of the day we expected aggressive riding from teams who knew that for instance Ineos that, that with, with the lineup they've, they've got and what we saw Borat do in the Giro that there there is a new approach to tactics uh, I, I know lots of teams because I was told that were, were actually wary of that stage because it was actually very bumpy you never knew what could, what could happen but what what Jumbo did that and what Masson said that plan that by looking at the course, you know, a long time ago. So, well, one of the new strategy in the tour is to get, you know, seconds to get a, an edge on the others. At the, you know, the, surpri the su surprise factor is a new thing in the tour. Like, when can I attack when nobody expects me to do that? Mm. You know, forget the big climbs, forget the, uh, you know, the, maybe the time travels that, that there was the, you know, in the day. The more and more we see teams trying something different, trying to to take the other off guard and that's 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 very exciting for the rest of the tour last little fact uh, Wood Van Aert is now the man 
uh, uh, who has won the most stages for Jumbo Visma in all their um, different monikers uh, with seven wins. Uh, I think in the past, uh, Yellen Nydam had won six, and I think they, they had another uh, rider at six wins. So, I mean, it's a team that's been around for a long time, and uh, Wood Van Aert is the guy who's won the most stages for them. Woo, 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 style police. One thing I noticed today walking around the buses was everyone was in aero suits. So everyone was predicting wind today. That was a real thing I, I gathered that the energy around the buses this morning and the clothing choice was for a fast, cross-windy day. Um, clearly, you know, I think everyone on the outside overlooked how hard this stage was. It looked like a pretty sort of up-and-down stage, but... Just going off what Jumbo Visma said, as well in the in the in the post-race interviews, was this was a key stage, crosswinds, but also that launch pad at the end. So it was, I think, it was an underrated stage because overhanging is it is the night before Christmas. It's Christmas Eve at the end of the day because tomorrow is Roubaix. Well, is it Christmas Eve or is it Easter? I don't know if it's as far as Christmas. It's certainly a festival of some kind. And Wout Van Aert certainly uh, zipped himself into his banana skin suit very effectively this morning. Shoot, uh, shoot at l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app, which consists of short lessons, 15 minutes they take, so you can squeeze them in, um, in amongst the rest of the things you've got to do during your day and the lessons are based on real life conversations so um, you get to learn phrases that are immediately helpful I've used both the French and the Italian versions and the French is slowly coming back to me Um, it always takes me a few days to get back into the French but I had a go this morning in the hotel and if you would like to sign up to Babbel you can get a six month free subscription when you purchase a six-month subscription so basically that's a year's subscription for the price of six months with the promo code cycling go to babble.com slash play and use the promo code cycling to get an extra six month free that's babble.com forward slash play promo code cycling what did you say in the hotel line i'm putting well, you on the spot here, here well we i go. checked in i checked in entirely in french yesterday and i understood all of the instructions i understood that you had to use your key card to <laughs> press against a little thing in the lift to make the lift buttons work so I, can, I can guarantee one thing uh, lionel i'll monitor your your progress in front in french as you go along your bubble plan make more than welcome to francois more than welcome to any other business from the stage today mitch because was it critical or crucial that Dylan Groenewegen of Bike Exchange had been dropped on the climb which meant that they were chasing to get back on which meant that there were fewer teams interested in really putting their shoulders to the wheel when it came to chasing Van Aert and it was left to Lotto and a little bit to Alpecin and to Quickstep to do the chasing would one more team have made any difference perhaps? At the end of the day, like I saw Michael Morkov was also rolling in afterwards I actually didn't see him chase but I know that he would have chased at the end of the day, everyone who got over that hill was on the limit too. You can't underestimate that. You think that all the riders are all back together and they're all going to bring him back. Everyone went to the limit to get over that climb. So everyone, everyone's effort there was was inhibited. You know, was inhibited. You know, it was like they were trying to bring it back, but they were also on the limit as well. A question, oh, ooh, a question I'm asking myself is: uh, Was Jasper Philipsen the only guy? sprinting for victory in that bunch sprint 
You see what I mean? We we, we focused on him, but maybe maybe Lap, no Laporte Lap must have known that uh, Van Aert was on top of him. But, but the other guys, you know, was there a real bunch sprint for victory or or or? or because I mean, if Philipson didn't know, I guess I guess some other guys didn't. Well, know. I had the feeling that um, also Intermarche with Christoph mm-hmm. maybe didn't know either because mm. they were very organised at the front. I actually thought I was standing at two hundred metres to go, and at that moment, it looked like Christoph was going to take that victory the way they were coming into it. But maybe they were just happy with second too. Well, we're in the rhythm now of the Tour de France, aren't we? It does feel like the real Tour de France now that we're back in France. That's not to say that the weekend in Denmark wasn't fantastic, but. It always feels quite different when the tour starts overseas, especially when we've had this kind of this Giro style start with the the rest slash travel day in between the first three stages and stage four. But we're back in the rhythm now and we're on the road. We're going to the start. We're driving on the all course. We're getting to the press room and it feels like the real tour has begun. So let's go back to lunchtime today. Where are we, Francois? We're in the press room in Calais. Uh, it's a, well, as usual, one of these huge warehouses or sports hall. We, you never, yeah, I think it's a sports hall. I see a scoreboard over there. Uh, and we're really close to the day's buffet, which is uh, well, quite, quite good, actually. My two comrades have a beer in their hand, not me, because uh, you know, I'm more the red wine type and there's none here. Um, and we, had, uh, we were treated to local specialties what they call carbonade. You know what carbonade is? Carbonade is a kind of stew, like if you know what bœuf bourguignon is or daube provençal. So a kind of beef stew, uh, which actually cooked in beer normally. And I, I, I had something different. I had, a, uh, I had chicken with uh, maroual. Maroual is uh, one of those you know, very stinky cheese they make in the north. Uh, it's pre- pretty good, yeah. So Quite a Flemish flavour, actually, to the buffet today because there was an endive salad as well. And this is one of the rituals of the day covering the Tour de France, isn't it? Francois, you wanted to call this segment something particular, didn't you? Yeah, I, I came with the idea. It's actually an old one. We had this idea about two years ago to call, you know, the race to the, to the press buffet brunch sprint, you know, because, yeah, usually you, you, you hardly have a breakfast and, and, some, and so, the, 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 you know, you, you hardly have uh, lunch and, when, and, and so some of the journalists really do have the impression they rush to get to the press room before everybody else. Some guys don't actually go to the start. Some guys go straight from the, to, from the hotel to the press buffet. And so I can say this guy can be considered brunch sprinters. Well, it's a bit later than brunch, isn't it? Because it's gone three o'clock and that's the rhythm of the day. Yeah, Mitch, I was going to ask you, you know, from life in the peloton, how are you adjusting to the rhythm of life in the press room? It's, yeah, it's a different feel, but there's similarities, you know, there's the same guys every day, you know, and you, you're trying to get in the wheel, like you, Francois said, you're trying to push and shove to, for that interview, also push and shove to get the food at the feed zone, at the buffet. There's a bit of a similarities there, uh, aside from, you know, in the middle of the race having a cold beer, like we are now, um, <laughs> that's a nice part of being uh, life in the press room. You're telling me you didn't have a beer during the stages? No, unfortunately I wasn't riding way back in the in the 50s or the 40s, whenever they did that, a glorious time. But um, no, I'm liking the adjustment, very much so. What did you make of the buffet? Because the, usually on the Tour de France, the buffet is laid on by um, somebody from the local council or the local area and they get people involved. Definitely a sense of pride uh, in the man serving the, the, um, the carbonade flamande. I'm a big fan of the cooked lunch, so I like seeing that. Not something that happens that often in Australia. 
um, and to be back having a sit down cook lunch it's nice sit down with your friends like us we just sat down had another chat uh, not that we haven't been chatting to each other all the time but you know a reset cold beer and now we're ready to get back into the second part of the day well we better go back into the press room and watch the race unfold on tv and see if those winds are blowing science in sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 tour de france science in sport fueled by science Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. 25% off everything at Science in Sport is available to all of our listeners with the discount code SISCP25. Hang on, Eve Lampert <laughs> as well. Did you not encounter the Eve Lampert um, uh, supporting supporters? Absolutely. Club, yeah. I, I mean, you know, the, the, as much as Lionel uh, had this intuition that uh, John Degum Club will win uh, Paris uh, Bay <laughs> the stage today, uh, I, I had this impression Lampard could do well, and he did well, you know, finishing third and being in the, in the leading group in the finale. And I, yeah, I recorded the, 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 the song and the chants of his fan club. Let's hear it. So that was the Eve Lampert fan club in Arras this morning, a premonition obviously. He was off off his bike at one point today as well and got back on. I think I don't know if he crashed or punctured. Yeah, I think it was a puncture. I mean, it's, it's always difficult to, to to say, you know, in the, in the mayhem of the the hell of the north. But I think it was a puncture. Great ride by him, though. He's he, I think he's ridden really well at this tour, his first Tour de France, and a big talent. You know, I think he's somebody who they'll be grooming as a, a perhaps a future Pyro Bacon. Oh, I think yeah, he'll be winning in this very velodrome uh, at some point in the future. I'm sure. Likes tractors, didn't he? I wondered if his fan club had all turned up on tractors in Iran. Didn't see them. They we probably saw a lot of tractors out there today. Yeah, they probably were not accredited. I mean, I mean, the Lampard's tractors. <laughs> no tractors in the Tour de France. Anyway. Well, that was a little flashback to the Roubaix Velodrome, Francois, four years ago. The end of stage nine, I think it was, when the Tour de France last hit the cobbles. And as you say, Mitch, it's the night before Christmas or Easter or whichever uh, particular festival or holiday you celebrate, the night before the Tour de France goes to the cobbles. And there is a sense that tomorrow will be special. This afternoon was, was exciting, but tomorrow drama's guaranteed, right? For sure. It's going to be a great day. Whatever happens, they're going to hit those cobble sectors. We're going to be actually cobble hopping tomorrow or sector hopping Something I've never done, but something I've always wanted to do. As a pro, I always thought to myself, ah, oh, looks good on the outside. You know, you get to just pop around to these sectors, watch us suffering. So I've tried to put together a bit of a plan, or well, maybe we have a look in the morning and we can suss it out. But in my own head, I'm thinking it's going to be a big day. Well, it's going to be a big day for the GC riders in particular because they must be even more nervous than the specialists because it's not something they necessarily do all the time. One rider who is very au fait with the cobbles is Geraint Thomas. He was second in 2010, way back in 2010, and of course is one of the leaders of Ineos Grenadiers, and I spoke to him this morning looking ahead at tomorrow's stage. Can you remember as far back as 2010 when you were second, I think it was, on the cobble stage? Yeah, yeah, that was a good day. Um, obviously, it was a big crash that day as well. I managed to pick my way through that. And yeah, you know, a guy like Fabian was drilling it on the front, I remember, for Schleck. So that's what the tour brings. It's a bit different to, say, Roubaix and stuff where everyone is, you know, Fabian would normally go for his own result, you know. So there's a lot more factors to take into account. But um, 
yeah, hopefully it'll be a good day for us. Is it a race on the cobbles in the Tour de France where it does kind of split into keeping an eye on the GC riders and, and divorcing yourself a bit from the race for the stage? Because back then you could do whatever you wanted, but tomorrow I guess it's a little bit different. Yeah, definitely. Like uh, I remember in 18, I remember seeing Degenkop and the guys sort of riding away and being like, oh, I could go. But then you sort of hesitate a bit because you're thinking more GC and you kind of, yeah, the GC guys kind of look each other, mark each other out. And then sometimes, you know, the, the guys who have a bit more freedom can go, like the classic sort of guys. So, but yeah, it's just, uh, it's a strange one, but it's just the main thing for us is being in the front, being in a good position for the first few cobbles and hopefully you're sort of there then. Because um, yeah, as we know, so much can happen. I mean, when Van Aert or Van der Poel start going, you know that there's an advantage if you can just follow and just stay out of trouble a bit, but you can let them kind of make the race. And also you've got the defending Paris-Roubaix champion alongside you. Yeah, definitely. Like, we've got a lot of strength and depth, a lot of horsepower, and um, that'll help getting in a good position, hopefully. And then, yeah, as you say, if we can follow the big boys when they do go, then all the better. As I mentioned there, Geraint Thomas and the Ineos Grenadiers team have the current reigning Paris-Roubaix champion in their ranks, Dylan Van Bala, who won, of course, in very impressive style in April. That's going to help them, isn't it? Having a, a cobbled expert, another cobbled expert to guide them through. And of course, they have Luke Rowe, who is also very handy on the cobbles. I mean, it's a strong lineup, but it does make me wonder how they will um, manage things because... Yeah, Garant Thomas, Luke Rowe, Dylan Van Bala, they could go on the offensive, but they also have to look after Danny Martinez and Adam Yates a little bit. But you spoke to Dylan Van Bala at the start, Mitch. I did, yes, and I had to be a bit of a fanboy there. I was very happy to see Dylan win Paris-Roubaix this year, and I wanted to speak to him about that, but it was more important to speak about tomorrow's stage. It was really interesting to hear what he had to say about his role tomorrow, which is going to be a different role in terms of instead of riding an individual classics Paris-Roubaix style race. I'm here with Dylan Van Baal, more importantly, Paris-Roubaix winner. Mate, we've got, we're on the eve of the cobbles. I know everyone's asking about it, but how are you feeling about jumping back on the stones in summer and also in the Tour de France? It's got a different feeling? Yeah, it's a pretty different uh, experience, to be honest. Um, there will be a lot more, um, yeah, it, like we have to watch out for the for the GC guys and we make sure we need to um, to make sure that they are on the front, you know. So it will be raced differently than in the classics. Um, but at the other end, we really have a strong uh, classics team here as well. We know how to ride the cobbles and we try to find opportunities. In many ways. You know, some people are probably looking at you going, yeah, well, it's going to be so easy for Dylan. He's won Roubaix, you know. But in many ways, it's actually probably harder because exactly what you said, you're not getting that freedom to concentrate on your own race. You're worrying about someone else who doesn't ride the way you ride. Are you feeling like that? It's actually probably going to be, in a way, a harder sort of mentally day than Roubaix was. Yeah, because what what I said, uh, the, the with, with the GC uh, in mind, we always need to be careful of that. Um, and in the classics, you just go whatever you know you just ride as fast as possible um, do your own race um, but also like the stage is 150k 11 cobble sections uh, it's not like Roubaix of course so I think the the factor of bad luck will play a big role um, if you have bad luck in, in Roubaix you can still manage to yeah to save the day a bit but I guess if you have bad luck um, tomorrow then it will be really hard to save it 
I suppose the big question is, will Wout van Aert get to stretch his legs tomorrow? I spoke to Sepp Kuss, as we heard earlier, this question of whether today's win in a way makes it easier for Van Aert to kind of settle into much more of a team role. This morning I spoke to Franz Massen about the Jumbo-Visma tactics for the cobbled stage. Obviously, we didn't know then that Van Aert was going to win the stage and stretch his lead in the yellow jersey. Uh, but it's clear from Massen what Van Aert's responsibility will be tomorrow. So looking ahead to tomorrow's stage, will Walt Van Aert be able to ride for himself or will he have to look after Roglic and Vingegaard? How will it work? Uh, normally, the, it's more important to protect these two leaders. But we hope we, uh, we get a situation that, uh, that also Wout has some freedom. But it will, actually, it will be really difficult, I think. Is it a big advantage, though, to have a rider like Wout van Aert to look out for Roglic and just guide him through the cobbles? For sure. Uh, we have also Nata van Odung, who is really... and Christophe Laporte doing that uh, really well so uh, it depends how big the group will be and uh, if we have no bad, uh, bad luck uh, with flat tires and crashes and everything so yeah it's uh, for all the peloton a really difficult uh, stage but we're looking forward to it we well prepared it and uh, yeah but first today because today is also tricky and also Roglic is pretty good himself because in the Grand Prix Danam we saw just how strong he was. Uh, yeah. How important was it to, for him to go and see what the cobblestones are all about? Yeah, that was was important, of course, but it's also, uh, yeah, um, yeah, not the same peloton, of course. Uh, to, uh, tomorrow, uh, yeah, it's completely else than uh, than there, but it was a good practice then, yeah. And finally, on the cobblestones tomorrow, do you think the Tour de France organisers have got the balance right? Difficult, challenging, but not too, not too much for a Tour de France peloton. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. How uh, everyone has his own meaning about that. I think uh, for me, it's like that. They made it uh, parkour, and of course, uh, it will. There will be crashes, and there will be some favours will drop, drop out of the tour, maybe. So yeah, that's, that's something uh, can happen also today, of course. And uh, yeah, that's part of the tour, but we see it as a chance. So Francois Van Aert has to look after Roglic and Vingegaard, and then they're hoping that maybe things will, you know, transpire that give Van Aert the chance to do something towards the end of the stage. But I mean, they're in a fantastically strong position, aren't they? Yellow jersey, Van Aert, one of the best riders on the cobbles, but they perhaps can't go chasing the stage win in the same way that Matthew van der Poel, who's been very quiet, really, in, in these opening few stages. He can really go for it for Alpecin de yeah, Koenig. Yeah, of course, there'll be two different races. I mean, three maybe for the guys who's, who are going to, be, to get dropped or we're going to be in, in trouble. We're going to, you know, puncture or everything. But obviously, there'll be, there'll be a race for the, for the stage win. And the teams without the real GC leader will go for it. And obviously, Mathieu van der Poel is the uh, obvious, uh, you know, favorite. But in the same time, my impression is that even teams like Movistar, I mean, they've improved dramatically on the on the cobbles compared to to you know t ten years ago. And I mean, it's it, we always have that question at the beginning of the Tour de France: Oh, are there enough cobbles? Should there be cobbles? And you know, I, and every time I, 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 I make the same answer, if you look at the history of the Tour de France, cobble, the cobbles have been 
there almost all the time. There, 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 there must have been like 15 years without cobbles on the, the 109 years uh, of the Tour de France because, I mean, bear in mind that before the 1960s in France, there were cobbles everywhere. So that the, the question in itself is a little bit uh, uh, silly. And, and in the same time, my impression is that lots of riders, including climbers, you know, uh, manage the cobbles much better than they used to do it. Then the problem with the cobbles, as you know, and Mitch knows much better than I do that you you never know what can happen. You can have a mechanic, you can you can puncture. Uh, you know that that's that that's the the, the kind of lottery uh, of the of, of the cobbles, and it can happen to anyone. Even Dylan van Bar can have problems. You know if he, if he crashes, if it, so, you know that that's the, the, the that's the excitement of it all. But yeah, for sure, they'll, they'll, tomorrow there'll be a race for the stage win. Uh, uh, a race for the GC. My impression for you mentioned Jumbo, they're so strong, and Ineos is the same. That I, do, I don't see for for those teams. I don't I don't think that, that there is quite a difference in in, in you know keep defending the GC position and going for the stage win because uh, I mean they're so strong, they're so tight as teams that they might do both in the same in the same. In, in the same time. What are you looking for, Mitch, tomorrow? Because, you know, there's so many questions, isn't there? Tadej Pogacar looked very impressive on cobbles at the Tour of Flanders, so um, he's presumably going to be coping okay, but what are the things that you're looking for? Oh, you're shaking your head. Do you think these cobbles are a different don't gravy? Even, don't even try and compare the two. That is <laughs> just an amateur comment right there. <laughs> Trying to compare Flanders to Roubaix. Get out of here. I thought you would have known better than that, Lionel. I was just setting <laughs> you up to uh, clarify the but point, you, It's not really Roubaix because you, you, I think you, you've, you've got, no, well, almost half the sectors in tomorrow, tomorrow stage, at least four or five of them are not Roubaix, are, are not regular Roubaix sectors. They're not re- regular Roubaix sectors, but they're all in the same area. And we've got two four-star sectors tomorrow, which will shake things up. The thing that everyone is confusing, and I'm included, is that it's not Roubaix purely because it's not the same time of year. Yeah. So the, the stones act very different this time of year. We've got a lot more gravel on there. There is no mud in between or even soft dirt, which actually can make the cobbles easier to ride in a way. Now we've got loose gravel. It's going to be very dusty and slippery. The stones are slippery now. They're not wet, but they're slippery. The dust gets on them. There's going to be a lot of cars driving over them beforehand. And that can cause a lot of problems, as well as the guys who don't know how to ride cobbles. When you get to Roubaix... Everyone there knows how to ride the stones, more or less, pretty well. So you're in a bunch full of skilled cobblestone riders. Tomorrow could be half the guys know how to do it. The other half are maybe hitting the stones for the first time in their life in difficult conditions. So add all that into the mix, plus guys waiting for GC guys and crashes, and and it's just going to be chaotic. And it's intense, isn't it? 155 kilometres, 11 sectors of pave. You know, there isn't any time for anyone to get worn out before they get to the cobbles. And the tension will be, you know, turned up to 11, won't it, before they even hit the first sector. There's also logistic and uh, mechanical uh, issue. Like, and that, that's where, you know, Philippe Mauduit, the uh, uh, Groupama FTJ, uh, you know, team... Uh, sports director uh, told me. I mean, they, 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 they have Frédéric Guédon with them who won Paris-Roubaix, so they, and Marc Madieu, of course, won it twice. We know what they're talk, uh, talking about. But he was telling me that, that the problem with that first part of the tour is, uh, is, is in a way, is the logistics, because they, they, they had to use the, the, the uh, TT bikes on the first day, then the, the, the regular bikes on the other days, and tomorrow they have a totally new, complete new set of bikes for everyone. I mean, they, they 
they they really uh, and I think that's the same for every team. They have their their, their kind of cobalt spikes and and they're different in tires, frames, everything. I mean, I'm sure Mitch could you know talk about it more. But I mean, so they had, they had three different sets of bikes in, in within five stages, which is a lot. Well, it was really interesting. And instead of me putting my opinion across, I actually went away and spoke to a couple of the mechanics. At, at, at the start of the race today I spoke to the head mechanic at Ineos Grenadiers and also my old mechanic at EF just to see what they're going to change because it was interesting to see are they going to go full Roubaix setup because it isn't you know Roubaix 50 kilometres worth of cobbles it's only 20 so half of that but you have to do all that road section before where you could if you run a full Roubaix setup lose so much energy that by the time you get to the cobbles potentially you're feeling a bit buggered and get dropped but if you don't have the right setup, as soon as you hit the cobbles, you're going to get dropped. It's a weird conundrum. You know, we've heard about this back in Roubaix where guys used to ride a different bike for the first 100Ks, change bikes, and then hit the first sector. Very risky because you may not get back. There's all these sort of questions. So um, it's really, it was really interesting to talk to those two guys. But talking about the bikes, this is something we haven't thought about speaking about. I was at the finish today, found it very weird. I'm just walking through the finish Tom Pitcock and Adam Yates were riding back to their hotel. Tom Pitcock was on his road bike. Adam Yates was back on the TT bike. And I was thinking, my initial thought was, oh, there's a TT coming up in the next few days. And I had to sit there and think, hang on, there's no TT till the end of this race. It was such a bizarre thing to see that he still wanted to get some time back on the time trial bike. Wow, that is interesting. Um, Well, it's the cobbles tomorrow. As you say, Mitch, no comparison between the Flanders cobbles and the Roubaix cobbles. I mean, Pogacar was impressive, though, wasn't he, uh, in Flanders uh, in the spring. But I suppose that's like, you know, having a hamburger before a, an all-you-can-eat steak-eating competition, I guess. I don't know. We'll see tomorrow, won't we? We're going to go cobble section hunting tomorrow. We're going to leave Francois to go to the finish and keep an eye on the race. Another episode of Kilometre Zero will be out in the morning. And this one is a poignant one because it's one of the last things that Richard Moore recorded before he passed away at the end of March. Uh, He went to the Grand Prix Denain. Now, that's a race that normally wouldn't get an awful lot of uh, interest. But this year, he spotted that Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingegaard and other riders, I think Danny Martinez for Ineos, uh, were on the start list and I remember Richard calling me up and saying have you seen the start list for the Grand Prix Denain and I, I hadn't <laughs> and so I had a look and he said I'm going to go and uh, this will make a great kilometre zero for the Tour de France and he went and he made that episode and uh, well we resolved a few months ago that um, we would use everything uh, that Richard had made shortly before he died and so that episode his day at the Grand Prix and I'm witnessing Roglic and Vingegaard and the others all testing out ahead months ahead of the Tour de France visit to the cobbles that episode of Kilometre Zero will be out tomorrow now before we get to the Tour de Buffalo our daily tribute to Richard Moore um, how did we get here how did we get to France from from Denmark I mean you guys got here a lot earlier than me but you had a difficult journey as well didn't you well, we had to wait for a long time. To, to, we, we actually flew from uh, Sonnenborg uh, to uh, Lille-Lequin, which is the, the airport. In, and uh, we, we took the, 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 the plane at past midnight, meaning that we got to Lille at 2, yeah, two in the morning uh, to get to the hotel. I mean, we got, 
we can't complain. That's 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 the tour. But yeah, it was kind of a kind of a strange feeling, like uh, you know, kind of wrapping up the, uh, the 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 Denmark park of the tour. It, it's it's it was great, you know, this Grand Depart. It's like it's like, a, it's like a huge, fantastic criterion before the the the, the tour proper get, gets into gear, and then you. And then where the rest is, it's, it's a little bit unsettling. And now, as you said before, you know, before the start of the, uh, at the start of this episode, uh, you, we, 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 we get, we get rolling. We need to, you know, to get rolling. We need to, to, to be in the place. How was your experience as a journalist, Mitch, compared to being a rider? I mean, you, you only just picked up your suitcase from Calais this evening. You've been without a suitcase for 36 hours. I'm loving it, honestly, and you might be listening on the other side thinking, how could he love it? You know, he wants, probably wants to be on the other side of the fence. I don't. I really, I'm just enjoying being a fan as well. Like today being 200 metres to go, feeling the excitement of that race, and also knowing what these guys are going through. Like I think there's a, a really good connection you can have how hard stuff is and how impressive some of the rides are. And what you see guys do... You know, even seeing... I was probably... I was... Don't get me wrong. I was very impressed with Wolf Van Aert. But I loved seeing the t- the turn from Tish Benoit. I could see him turning himself inside out and just knowing, like, that's my job. Setting someone up for that kind of thing. And you can relate to that kind of turn. So me being a fan over here and being on the other side of the fence, I'm loving it. And getting to chat to the, the, jour- the journos, the journalists, and just, you know, <laughs> seeing how they think and... You know, what they want to get, what stories they want to get, and how they go about it, and just going, oh, right, that's what it's like behind here. So I'm getting in. Well, we all made it here to northern France. My journey was a little bit more complicated than yours. We drove back to Copenhagen from Sonneborg, which should have been a three-hour drive, but there was an unbelievable rainstorm. It was the most incredible rain and electrical storm that I've ever witnessed and Tom Carey from the Telegraph who I was travelling with said that it was like something from the tropics you know it was a a really violent storm we were slowed down to like 30 40 kilometers an hour on the the road approaching Copenhagen we had a quick stop over at Copenhagen airport that night a flight back to London Gatwick would you believe and then picking up a car to come through the channel tunnel and then uh, I actually got a train from Calais down to Lille to meet up with you guys and then we had our second curry of the Tour de France yesterday I mean it was we had a strange experience yesterday with Mitch uh, because we had a kind of day off in Lille, which is my birthplace. And, and a, as you know, a, a bustling, you know, young universities town. And normally, uh, it was a Monday, lunchtime. We couldn't eat. <laughs> we couldn't. I mean, we, we went to at least 30 or 40 different restaurants. It was ridiculous. <laughs> First, we, wanted, we were a bit picky in the start because we wanted... Lamoule, what is it? Mussels. Is that how you yeah, say? Yeah, we, we wanted moule frites, you know, moule, that, that's moule uh, mussels and, and french fries, which is which is the... Okay, I mean, specialists will say, mm, you don't have moule frites in July. Okay, but never mind. You, 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 in my day, there, there you, you had, you know, spent, spent lot, lots of time, you know, in any restaurant in, in Lille, you would, you would have moule frites. We couldn't, we, we couldn't only find two places doing moule frites and they were full up. And it was totally crazy. I mean, they... they I talked to a couple of restaurant owners there, and they were telling me that they'd never seen that. Monday, lunchtime, the Tour de France was 80 k's away, and it was totally... So apparently, they, they didn't know why. There, there was a, a, a gig, you know, a big concert the day before. The tour was not far. Uh, or may, maybe Lille has become, the, you know, a, a great holiday destination. <laughs> we, we don't know, but it was... 
Maybe something different, which is interesting, that after COVID, I don't know, we'll see for the rest of the Tour de France, but lots of restaurants in France, I suppose it's the same in, in other countries, are understaffed. Lots of guys who used to work in restaurants and hotels before COVID, they resigned and don't want to be back in the job. So we'll see, we'll tell you at the end of the Tour whether it's a, it's a, it's a French plague or... <laughs> well, before we wrap up, I just need to mention the collaboration between the Cycling Podcast and MAP because the three jersey designs have been unveiled and I gather that the middle of the three designs, so the kind of 80s-inspired design, which is Dot, is leading. So if you like the other two designs, Check and Fade, you need to get voting. Go to map.cc to vote. Uh, well, and obviously, if you like dot then you need to also vote because uh, to keep it out in the lead um we are going to wrap up with our daily tour to buffalo <laughs> you're laughing i mean it's logical isn't it francois no, <laughs> no everyone just vote vote for the one that you Check. like most i'm trying subliminal <laughs> <laughs> are you doing it again are you yeah, quietly I'm saying check to, you know yeah, check absolutely. fade fade the three designs are called Check, Dot and Fade and they are redolent of different eras of cycling. Go to map.cc to see the... <laughs> Stop doing it, Francois. <laughs> anyway, go to map.cc to vote for your favourite design. The winning design will go into production at the end of the year and, well, each uh, the winning design will have a buffalo motif added to it somewhere and uh, that's a nice segue to the daily tour de buffalo and a reminder of 2014 because I made it back to... Calais through the Eurotunnel this time but back in 2014 when the Tour de France started in Yorkshire Richard and I had a real difficult day getting through the tunnel we actually missed the entire Tour de France stage so this is a flashback to 2014 have a listen to that Mitch we need to go through our detail for tomorrow we'll do that at breakfast tomorrow tomorrow we're going to go out on the cobbles Francois we'll meet you at the finish until then thank you very much Francois thanks thank you Mitch see you tomorrow and this is back to the 2014 Tour de France and a memory of Richard Moore the Tour du Buffalo remembering Richard Moore no Daniel although we'll be um, we'll be speaking to Daniel in a, in a few moments um, but a bit of a misadventure a bit of a mi mishap today Lionel so I'm going to start by asking you where aren't we well, we're certainly not at the Tour de France at the moment. Um, we've come straight to our hotel, which is more of a um, farmhouse B&B &B in the Flanders countryside, about three miles from the Kemmelberg, which is a famous hill in the Ghent-Wevelgem Spring Classic. We are here because tomorrow's stage starts in Ypres, which is about six miles away. And, um, yeah, today we missed it all because of the uh, problem on the Channel Tunnel. There was a, an electrical fault on a train on on monday causing six hour delays uh, we thought we were being very clever by staying at maidstone services on monday night thinking yeah we'll get up in the morning we'll just get across all the problems will be solved all it meant was that we had our six hour queue um to get on the channel tunnel in the morning on tuesday so uh, we arrived in france just in time to stop in a little cafe and watch the finish of the fourth stage on the television in there we rescued uh, Calamity, I think, by getting there. It, we were on French soil to watch the finish of, of the stage today, and we saw Marcel Kittel win his third stage. This one, the most difficult of the, the three so far, by a long way. He seemed to lose his train in the 
in the final kilometre or so he certainly lost his lead out man um, and had to improvise a little bit Alexander Christoph, the Katusha rider um, took a bit of a flyer and it looked like he had the stage he was at least a length clear of Kittel but Kittel was really suffering we could see from the expression on his face he was suffering, mouth open but he just got it back didn't have time to celebrate but um, a third stage win for him proved that he's the dominant sprinter the stage was also notable for a crash by Chris Froome early, very early in the stage he was pretty bashed up it happened right at the front of the bunch safest place to be theoretically but there was a touch of wheels down he went he's off for an x-ray tonight we gather that there's no broken bones but it was, um, it was, a, it was a nasty crash on perhaps the worst possible day because tomorrow's stage Wednesday's stage is of course the one that everybody's been talking about for a long time uh, it's the mini Pyro Bay stage over the pave, nine sections of pave. It's a stage that everybody's been nervous about, apprehensive about, all the teams have been preparing for. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.